Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth, Heresies, and Hearsay, Episode 17, Migration Through Time. I'm glad to be back at it after the hiatus during the holidays. Hope everyone had a great one and the batteries have all been recharged. We last left off in Episode 16 with the myth of the Leia fail and how important it seemed to be over the centuries to the peoples who have lived in what we now call the United Kingdom. So we're going to go back in time and continue with the legend story. Back in the days of the Pharaohs, a small clan of about 70 desert dwellers entered Egypt and settled in the land of Goshen a very fertile area in northern Egypt. Now, how they got there is one of the most interesting stories I've ever heard, and it would take up a whole other episode, uh, which I hadn't planned on doing at this time. If you don't know this story and want to check it out yourselves, you can find it in Genesis 37. It has to be one of my all-time favorites, With such a strange turn of events, you almost couldn't make it up. Well, I guess a brilliant mind could make the story up. So these folks settled in Goshen and prospered. In fact, thrived. These were, in fact, the Hebrews led by their patriarch, Jacob. By this time, he was called Israel. You probably know the story that after a pharaoh who came to power and didn't know anything about the alliance with the Hebrews, and a little like one party coming to power and does some house cleaning to get rid of the other party's agenda. This was some serious house cleaning. As the guy makes all the Hebrews slaves, mostly because the Hebrews had become so prosperous that this pharaoh feared being overthrown like he had done to the old regime. By the way, I need to digress a little. Common knowledge has it that the pharaoh of the Exodus was the pharaoh Ramesses. I love Charlton Heston as Moses, and gosh, Yul Brenner was such a great Ramesses in the movie Ten Commandments. Loved his signature line when telling his betrothed before the wedding, You were one of my possessions, like my horse, only I would love you more and trust you less. Oh, yes, great fun. I can only imagine how that line would go over these days. Except the pharaoh of the Exodus could not have possibly been Ramesses. Let's examine the career of Ramesses, often called Ramesses the Great, one of the most famous and successful of the pharaohs for his military exploits, virtually unbeatable in battle. One of the ultra-awesome pharaohs. So now let us examine this loser who was the pharaoh of the Exodus. Okay, water turning to blood, so not a lot of drinking water for beast or man. Hard to go on as normal with that one, but wait, there's more. Then there were frogs everywhere, lice, flies, and pestilence that killed most of the livestock. 
locusts eating all the crops so food was in short supply. You can imagine how this would have affected the economy. Topped off by the loss of the firstborn, instantly eliminating a large percentage of leadership and workforce. And to top this off, losing all or most of his armed forces, including all of the equipment, chariots, swords, horses, yada, yada, by drowning them in pursuit of said Hebrews after telling them first to get lost. Does this sound like someone named the Great to you? The most successful pharaoh in history? This sounds like a guy ready to be dethroned and indeed pissing away his dynasty. I'll get back to this one, but I don't want to lose the narrative, so back to the narrative. The Israelites had been very prosperous, ridiculously so, in fact. We get the idea in our little minds that that meant lots of money and farmland for food and, and the like, and life was really good. It did mean this, but what it also meant was that they would have also had business opportunities in Goshen, i.e., importing and exporting commodities with the Mediterranean close at hand, perhaps at first contracting merchant ships, and eventually fleets of their own. Beyond that, there may have been small colonies set up. Thus, the reason why the Pharaoh lamented, Behold, the people of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Let us deal wisely with them. Thus, they made slaves of the house of Israel. At this point, when some of the Hebrews saw the handwriting on the wall, so to speak, and were able to avoid slavery due to their affluence, and were able to leave before the hammer really came down and the brown stuff hit the fan. Much in the same way of the Jews before World War II were able to, though not nearly enough, I might add. Many had business interests elsewhere, thus places to go. But of course, the larger percentage was endured some 400 years of slavery. So the legend goes that during the time they were free in Goshen, they expanded business contacts to the point of colonizing and may have even founded not only the city of Sparta, but Troy as well. The odd thing about the war between these two cities, i.e. the Trojan War, is that these two cities actually got together every so often to party together. This makes me feel like there was a kinship between them before the whole affair with Helen of Troy being seduced and abducted by Paris, the Prince of Troy. Paris didn't just happen to meet this girl. They would have been known to each other since childhood. And during one of these get-togethers, he was able to pull off the abduction. But to my point, why did these cities feel the need to get together to celebrate on a regular basis? This has the feel of a family thing, or at least a kinship thing. Otherwise, why would these peoples feel the need to travel the distance just for a beer fest? Then there was the story recorded in 2nd Maccabees that confirms that the Spartan king writing to the high priest 
Onias in Israel, revealing himself as Israelite, with the high priest writing back to him, calling him brother. Then there is the name game. Was it Spartan or Spardan? If you soften the T to a D, you can easily get the root word of Dan out of that. The tribe of Dan, it seems, was always a seafaring tribe. The prophet Deborah criticizes the tribe of Dan in the book of Judges because they preferred chilling out in their ships instead of fighting in a time of war that Israel was involved in. Then there was the Danish, or should I say Danish, a seafaring peoples if there ever was one. The Danes also lived next to a barbarian tribe called the Jutes. Again, soften a D to a T. And you have Judes, as in Judeans. The northern tribes of Israel had stopped calling themselves Israel, by the way. The Assyrian king who conquered them called them the Qumran, after the greatest king in the northern tribe's history, Omri. The Bible just says that this Omri, or Umri, did evil in the sight of the Lord and leaves it at that. But secular history states that this guy was some kind of dude who put the northern tribes on the map for a while. Meanwhile, back in Greece, there were a people who dominated the scene for a while, that, that being the Danoi, which, by the way, translates out to the tribe of Dan. In Ireland, along with the line of Zara, as spoken of in the last episode, there was also a strong group called the Tuatha de Danann, which also translates out to the tribe of Dan. One other note about the tribe of Dan, they are conspicuously absent in the story of the conquest by the Assyrians of said tribes. Some scholars think that is because they had already left before the Assyrians swept through, and again, maybe seeing the handwriting on the wall, which does seem to describe their MO. So can you follow these names on the map? Maybe. There are places in northern England called Cumbria and Kimri, also Umbria, and many other place names like these, like Northumbria, along with place names such as Don, Din, Den. Remember, vowels were optional in the ancient languages, which may explain the evolution of the words themselves. And this name game is definitely circumstantial and definitely not a scientific way to do a study. But this circumstantial stuff did get my attention. Anyway, back to the Pharaoh of the Exodus thing. If it wasn't Ramesses the Great, who was it? The candidate most likely is a Pharaoh named Amenhetep II. Not a lot known about him. One thing that struck me was that he did not like non-Egyptians and actually passed laws to curtail the influence of those who were not Egyptians. 
Hmm. It is said he was very athletic, and I'm guessing tended to be arrogant, since we know great athletes tend to be arrogant. I'm just kidding. No, really, I'm just kidding. But to my point, the timeline works better as well. He ruled in the 1400s BC to where as Ramesses ruled in the 1200s BC. We know that Amenhetep's son, who succeeded him, Thutmose IV, was not his firstborn, which is consistent of the plague of the firstborn. One more fun fact. Amenhetep's first wife, Hatshepsut, Hatshepsut, okay, ruled Egypt while Thutmose IV was still a minor. There are a few women who did the job of Pharaoh in various times during Egypt's long history, so it wasn't unheard of for a woman to rule. What was strange is that as soon as the Egyptians got the chance, after her rule, the Egyptians eliminated all record of her by completely defacing all of the stone reliefs of her. It seems that this Hatshepsut was the most hated woman in Egypt. But why? Turns out that this woman was most likely the girl who fished Moses out of the river, saving his life. So from name game to blame game we go. You can understand the feeling, what with the flies and the lice and the frogs, not to mention the smell of the dead cows. Definitely not good for tourism. Well, hope you forgive me for this digression in the middle of a digression. I'd like to say that this kind of thing won't happen again, but I'm pretty sure it will. So thanks for sticking with me. Hope everyone has a great weekend. Till next time.